You have this belief that if you just talk enough, if you just say enough, you'll change someone's mind. And he reminded me, some people just view the world differently. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Crown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Douglas S. Birch. He is the co-pastor of Evergreen Foursquare Church in Auburn, Washington. Doug also serves as the host of a the Fairly Spiritual Show podcast. He's the author of a new book, Posting Peace. Doug, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, thanks for having me on. So um, Auburn, Washington is one of the more remarkably beautiful places in this country, but outside of your uh, proclivity to picking nice places to live, what would you want us to know about you? Hmm. Well, you know, I really didn't pick where I live. I, I, I was born in Auburn and I just never left. Um, let's see. Uh, for me, you know, I, I love Jesus. I've spent, I think it's 22 years pastoring the same church. It was a a church we started, and I've just never decided to leave, and it's uh, just a simple, normal-sized community. And then on the other hand, besides raising a family and having a lovely wife and four kids, uh, I also do this other stuff, uh, evangelistic writing, books, speaking, uh, radio shows. That's the other part of my life, and that's pretty much what I do most of the time. So for those that aren't familiar with the Foursquare um, tradition, tell us a little bit more uh, about it. 
Ah, you're, you're the first person who's asked to me. Uh, if you don't know anything about Foursquare, you're like, what is that? Is that a child's game with a ball that you bounce back and forth? It comes from the, the Pentecostal background. In fact, our, our founder was Amy Simple McPherson. And uh, I think one of the reasons she formed her own denomination is she was divorced and remarried. And that didn't even fit into some uh, church cultures at the time. But it's charismatic, Pentecostal. If you go into some four square churches, though, um, sometimes they just seem kind of non-denominational. So even as I'm sure you're aware of and the listeners are aware of, within denominations, there's a spectrum of how people express their distinctives, especially generationally. But it's within that charismatic Pentecostal tradition. Okay. Tell us a little bit more, uh, you know, about the church. How do y'all approach ministry? Um, you know, it's interesting I would say for our listeners, because I would say predominantly most of our folks are in uh, the South, Southeast, Southwest, um, but doing church in the Northwest is completely different. You know, it really is. And I, I do think, because I lived in Springfield, Missouri for a while. Uh, I went to the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Um, but it seems like the Northwest is just a few years ahead on where the country's going. And I'm not saying that like in a proud sense, just let's say in the secularization of the country. I grew up where, you know, I didn't even expect the church to have a central role in community and culture. And a lot of the churches in the Northwest are kind of these hybrids of all kinds of different traditions. You can go to a Methodist church that, or a Presbyterian church that's run by a Methodist pastor with a history in Catholicism. You know, you get, you get all these kind of mixes of people. So my journey is kind of like that from an assemblies church to Presbyterian to ending up in uh, Foursquare. But for me in the Northwest, I kind of like that we don't have the cultural baggage, the stuff where people can't distinguish between what is God, what is country, what is politics, that some of those um, lines there uh, are just more, you know, we just don't exist within the culture around us. So we can preach a gospel that contrasts the world around us, uh, but also, uh, I don't know. There's just a, a purity of, I think it's Paul talked about that. He'd like to go into places that hadn't been reached. And, and I understand that concept. We have a fascinating uh, new book, uh, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. Um, you wrote, whether confronting a pandemic or tackling the realities of everyday existence, the internet is a wonderfully powerful, dangerous tool. So, uh, what chance encounter on social media wounded you so that you had to write a book about it? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was one event. Uh, for me, my heart has always been uh, to bring people into reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. And I'm not just talking about racial reconciliation, the idea of, of uh, reconciled to God and one to another. And that's always been my passion. And for like five years, I had the ability to be on a Christian radio station where I tried to facilitate a better dialogue, you know, where people of different political persuasions, uh, particularly Christians, could gather together and talk in ways that were um, respectful, loving, Christ-like. And uh, what I found uh, is that uh, there was a lot more hostility than I realized to that idea. And then after I left radio, I noticed the same trends that I saw in talk radio happening on social media, where every person is becoming their own little talk show host. They're uniting people around their ideology. They're finding trending topics to give their opinions about. And the goal really isn't reconciliation. The goal is to be right for, and for others to be wrong. The goal is to build up like-minded people to rally around your cause. 
And I think that's very dangerous. So with that context, I wanted to look at why is social media doing this? Why do we seem to be more angry and divisive? I think everyone notices that at some level, we just seem to be more polarized. So is it just people are getting worse or is the technology itself polarizing us? So that's kind of what sent me on that journey. I think a lot of people, when they think about um, the challenge of social media, they they go back to the 2016 election cycle. You know, so one of the major head scratchers of social media is people's willingness to believe whatever's posted. You know, so for example, in the 2016 election cycle, well-educated, mentally balanced people are believing the most ridiculous and unreputable articles about their political opposition, and, and we shouldn't be all that surprised by this. I mean. Um, this has been around for as long as there's been media, right? You know, Fox News makes billions of dollars a year on false and misleading reports to incite fear and anger. But what is it about social media that causes well-balanced people to throw truth to the wind and believe whatever they read and see? Well, this is the big question, isn't it? And I, I look at this a little bit in the book, but the concept I think you're even getting at is just the conspiracy theories, people just believing flat out lies, following people that, you know, I think someone who at some level who's educated or has some sort of, I, mean, I know this sounds judgmental to those people who believe it, but I'm like, how can a thoughtful, intelligent person with reasoning skills follow someone like that who shows the fruit and the behavior of someone that's so corruptive. So what's happening with that? Well, I think one of the things is social media does allow you to segment yourself. And one, the technology itself is segmenting us into these ideological groups. But also, you know, before social media, if you had a really extreme idea or view, uh, you had to kind of go find someone. That was, that was harder. You had to walk through your city and see if you could find someone with a similar idea. So there was a way to kind of normalize better behavior, because if someone was on the extreme, um, they would kind of be at some level, no one would feed into that extremism. I know there's problems with that as well, where groups could control someone who's being oppressed and marginalized groups. But what's happened now is if you have an extreme view or even just an errant view, you can find another, what, 100,000 people who agree with you. And there's something that emboldens us, that kind of mass thing. You know, we've seen it at concerts when everyone starts acting the same way or, or when everyone starts, you know, their team wins and they start turning over cars and lighting things on fire. There's something when we unite around something that the worst in that group can be exaggerated. So we're seeing the propagation of disinformation through social media, and that's becoming more and more aggressive and extreme and, and ways where we don't even realize we're arguing with information bots and we're arguing with people who aren't even people. And then the people who have very extreme views can unite with other people with extreme views and it's normalized because their whole day they're spending, let's say, and we, and we knew that even about Fox News, but now you're not just on Fox News, now you're on your own specific website that confirms that or even draws it into a more extreme conception. And so I think that's one of the problems why we're getting such polarization. And also from the view of many people, how could someone get so far gone or so far removed from the truth? Well, it's there in communities that are promoting, uh, perpetuating lies or deception. And I think within those communities, there's some leaders who know what they're doing, but others who maybe are a little bit more naive or even trusting are just believing that they're within these true communities that are telling them the way the world is versus how the rest of the world is presenting reality. Let's break this down into size a, a little bit more. You know, so there is something both private and public about social media. We can 
post just about anything we want about our lives, pictures, locations, deep feelings, and secrets. And then we have the ability to troll people um, with anonymous accounts or say whatever we want to without recourse, especially since oftentimes we'll never see this person. Um, in your research, what, what makes social media such a cantankerous tundra of malice? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Um, well, you know, I look, looked at a scholar, Marshall McLuhan, who wrote in the, well, it was like the his, he was very popular, let's say, in the mid-1970s. He talked about that we don't take seriously that the medium is the message. Like every medium, whether it's radio, TV, or and he, the internet was not around at that time, uh, the printing press, but any medium, including uh, uh, social media, it doesn't just allow us to communicate messages. It changes what we communicate and how we communicate. And there's so many ways that social media dehumanizes us. One, and at a practical level, is it removes all so many of the social cues we use to humanize each other. Uh, the idea of just even facial expressions, which might seem like a simple thing, but one of the reasons we get so polarized is what happens when we start arguing online? We just start typing things. You know, we just it's a very text-driven kind of arguing platform. Well, how do people learn empathy? Studies have shown that people learn empathy through facial expressions. Children learn empathy through just looking. They say something negatively. They, they say something hurtful and they see in the other person's face hurt. Well, what happens online? We don't see the other person's face and we just make them a caricature of what we think they should be. So the other person's snarling and angry and judging us. And so we have no problem writing negative things to someone who's snarling and judging and angry with us. But if we saw them crying or experiencing some sort of trauma or feeling discomfort, we'd probably change how we communicate. So that's just one area. There's also studies where we only use certain parts of our brain when we become very text dependent, when it's just about reading and writing. And a lot of our problem solving, big picture solution things don't occur through that part of the brain that's geared towards writing and reading. Uh, the visual cues, the the, the idea to have big picture thinking, problem solving, emotional connection, those are other parts of the brain that are often activated by other things, more visual cues or more relational, even touch cues, you know, being in someone's presence. So the, the reality, and as Christians, as we even see this, is social media is in, a, in and of itself a disincarnate platform, a disembodied platform. And that creates a distance and it creates detachment that makes us dehumanize each other. As Christians, we're called to be incarnational. As Christ is our incarnational, the word of God in the flesh dwelling amongst us, that is our mandate as well. And it seems to me that social media pushes us away from the strength of the gospel, which is to incarnate, to humanize, to image God through a person, not just through text. We've all been there before. Uh, we see an injustice, we whip out our phone and begin pinning the most remarkable post that humanity <laughs> has ever read. Uh, you know, we pour our heart and soul into it, calling out such injustices and pointing people to a better way. And then we click post. And, and within minutes, the likes, the shares, the comments pour in. But then there's also the clashing of people from friends lists that are in different ideologies. And, and all of a sudden, our well-intended post has created a black hole of mean-spirited banter. Yeah. Um, do we really need to post about everything? Do we really need to give our take on everything happened in the world? Is that the best way to approach the challenges we face in our world? 
Well, one of the things I try to do in the book is not say everyone needs to do it a certain way, because I think humans are so different. We have different callings, different mental health capacities, um, desires and interests. You know, even within a marriage, how one spouse can communicate online in one way that might be very different than the other. And you can't just say one way is right and one way is wrong. But to me, this is the big focus of the book. Uh, if social media already polarizes us and leads to disconnected or dis carnate behavior, we must be intentional on our motivations. And I believe every Christian is called to the ministry of reconciliation. And that means the purpose of communicating on any topic, even the most controversial topic, is that I'm trying to bring people closer to God and to tear down the dividing walls of hostility between each other. And that means I'm not just trying to be right, I'm trying to be reconciling. So if someone responds to me with an argument or is upset, my goal isn't to tear that person down and to ridicule them the way they ridiculed me or to show them that my politics are right and their politics are wrong. I can communicate truth. But the reason I'm communicating my truth is I love that person. I want to bring them into the light. I want to bring them into the life of Jesus. That takes an intentionality. And many of us have forgotten that, that we just get caught in defensiveness, you know, our, our egos are bruised, we feel attacked, and we begin to communicate not for the purpose of bringing people closer to God or the love of God or the truth of God. It just becomes a desire to win this thing or to, you know, hurt the person the way they hurt us. We might not say that, but that's kind of what we're doing. You said something that offended me, so I'm trying to say something that offends you. Now, you mentioned the larger context of should we talk about everything? And I'd say, no, uh, I think God has specific agendas for us. And one of the problems is we're letting other people set the agendas of our life. And we're using our best energy on things that we're not supposed to spend our energy on. And that's different for each pe person. Some people might be very much a calling to deal with uh, immigration. And, and that's just on your heart. And although you want to have opinions about other things, you need to use your best energy towards those things that bring about immigration reform and help with the dispossessed or are displaced or those who are treated as second class uh, individuals in the world, you know, whatever your passion is. And what happens with these trending topics is we just find a trending topic and we all communicate on it. And I can't believe that that's God's agenda for our life, that he woke up and said, I want everyone to talk about Bill and Melinda Gates uh, divorce. Are we all supposed to talk about that? I think there's something in that that is twisted, and it's letting someone else set the agenda for our lives. And Christians should have different agendas than everyone else. Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a fully Master of Divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, Levels 1 and 2, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, The Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. 
we are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You wrote, some of us tried to combat our argumentative social media climate through developing and promoting better arguments. We believe mm-hmm. providing better information leads us to better discussions. Take us a little deeper there. Well, I think any pastors listening understand this problem. When I first started out in ministry, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to preach a really good message and the world's going to be changed. You know, I had that excitement of that. I remember I had an older pastor who was working with me at one time and uh, we were talking with someone who disagreed with something in our church and, and was leaving and it wasn't acrimonious, but it was still, you know, not a good conversation. And I just kept talking to this guy, trying to convince him to see things my way. And after about an hour of talking, the older pastor came to me and he said, you know, Doug, you have this belief that if you just talk enough, if you just say enough, you'll change someone's mind. And he reminded me, some people just view the world differently. But that went to a bigger issue for me, that often we first try to solve things through information. The information Google age is I can find all the answers with just a quick search. And so we just think I'll give better information, a better wisdom. I think I learned as a pastor this truth, and I'm learning it online as well, that I must actually work on facilitating relationship, uh, facilitating trust, that someone knows that I care about them, that someone knows that I'm not their enemy. Uh, some sort of relational way for them to know that I'm a safe person, or even if I'm not safe in the sense of what I'm saying contradicts their lives, that at some level, they know that I'm doing this. My attempt to speak to them is because I really do care about them. That is different than giving all the right answers. And we know this like in marriage, like in marriage, a a marriage fight isn't solved by having all the right answers. It's not by convincing your wife that you're right and she's wrong or your spouse that they're, you know, if you just hear me a little bit more, if you mansplain people into the kingdom, that's not how it works. It works through kind of de-escalating all of that and actually letting someone know I love you or I care about you. Now that's in the intimacy of marriage, but in any friendship, in any church environment, When someone comes through the doors, whether they agree with us or not, we try to facilitate an environment where they believe it's safe in the sense that people actually love you, and they're actually here to help you and to serve you. The problem with an information age is we just go right to the information. And I think all of us can think of times we did that, when we tried to solve a problem first, when someone first just needed to know that they were loved or that they could just even listen to you because they didn't know the relational context in which you were communicating that information. So what does this practically look like? How have you put this into practice in your pastoring and your presence online? Well, one of the things I did with the book is I wanted to make it practical in the sense that when I preach, I don't do a lot of application like you need to do these three things because I think there's an arrogance to that and it makes me an intermediary where I'm telling, I'm becoming God to people. So what I have in the book is at the end of each chapter, 
I have questions that they can ask themselves and then challenges of things that they can do in their context uh, to be able to express peace. You know, I, I give some practical things of, you know, for me, a, a good way to humanize social media is to always talk uh, about someone as if they're in the room, uh, as if they're next to you in church. You know, would you talk to them that way? And that really changes things. Would you say these things, whether it's a celebrity, uh, whether it's someone that really bothers you, would you say that to them when they're in the room? Uh, the other one, and it, it can become such a cliche, but truth and love is a big issue. Uh, if if uh, love becomes a secondary value, it's no longer love. And people say, well, you know, if truth becomes a secondary value, it's no longer truth. I get that. We understand what truth is. Truth came in the form of Christ Jesus. So when I'm communicating truth, if I'm disconnecting it from love, I'm in trouble. If I say, well, facts don't care about your feelings, that's not true. Someone who loves us cares about our feelings. Doesn't mean they're not going to still say the truth, but they're going to say the truth in a way that we can be able to receive it. Another big one to me at a practical level is the concept of pausing. Um, you know, Jesus even gives us that example of that he specifically would go away to be with the Father and to pray and to, and to step back from the crowds, whether it was a good crowd or a bad crowd, whether it was success of ministry in Capernaum, uh, he, would, he would step away and get the Father's heart. And the Father would often tell him to go in a different direction than where he is. Like, don't stay in Capernaum, go to other places. Uh, you've given enough energy to these people, go to some other people. And I think we need to do that as well. Some of us are just wasting our life energy with one person or one issue, arguing through the day. And if we would stop and pause, I think at some level, however God leads you, you you'd get a sense of, uh, this is done. I need to go meet other people. Uh, this isn't healthy to this person. It's not healthy to me. Uh, I'm not their savior. Uh, I can actually part ways with this person and give my best energy to someone else. So those are kind of the practical things that I, I look at, but also just to look at, here's something I'd ask people to, to look at. Uh, Marshall McLuhan talked about that every, every technology extends human capacity and weakens human capacity at the same time. So ask yourself this question, with social media, what part of your human capacity does it extend? It extends maybe your desire to connect with people. Um, it, it, it extends your voice, that your voice can go in all kinds of different directions, which is really powerful. It can, you can unite with people with shared interests, shared trauma, you know, church too, uh, me too. There's all kinds of powerful ways where something in me can be extended and I can reach people at a way I could never reach them before. Well, at the same level, it extends parts of our life. It also numbs parts of our lives. And I'd like you to look at how does social media, the ease of being able to connect with thousands of people, how has it numbed your ability to have meaningful connections with anyone? Are you willing to go through a conflict with someone? Or maybe you don't have to anymore because you can just easily find someone else. You can block that person, mute them, and go on to someone else. So to look at these issues, where because it's not all bad and it's not all good, and often those two things go right together, where it, it best works in your life. It can also be an area of weakness where it's numbing an area of your life. And, and that's what I ask people to, to look at as well. Where is it extending uh, your, your, your personality, your giftings, your, uh, your human potential? And then as it extends, is it weakening 
some of the work you need to do, which is forming relationships through a conflict or being in diverse community with people who don't agree with you, but that's necessary if we're going to do the work of reconciliation. One of the remarkable aspects of the internet is the freedom and voice it has given to millions that would have never had the opportunity to let others hear their thoughts, their creativity and insight. Um, you wrote, our communication is no longer based on where we live and who we know. We don't have to wait for a gatekeeper to let us speak. We don't need to be called on by a moderator, pastor, organization, or editor for us to share our message. If we're passionate about issues, we can instantly communicate our message to the world. You know, while we should celebrate this freedom and limitless voice for historically muted individuals, um, we also have to embrace the consequences of such limitless opportunity. So what might it look like for, for educators, for influencers, for, for ministers uh, to teach and train people to use their voice responsi responsibly, um, positively, and truthfully? Mm. Well, you know, one of the things I did want people to understand this is the reason people reconciled in the past was not because they were more righteous, but because they had to. They had less people to interact with. Think about before the car. Like how many people would you even interact with? Uh, people within walking distance. How many churches could you go to? There might be two or three in the town. And so you had to find a way to get along with people. You had to find a way to connect and abide with your neighbor. Uh, you had to find a way to exist in a church uh, where the leadership annoyed you. Now, as you mentioned, or that quote mentioned, there were weaknesses with that as well, right? Where people could control a community. The neighbor could control the dynamics of the, the neighborhood because the person couldn't go anywhere else. A pastor could control a church because you didn't have any other options. You were stuck in that reality. Well, this is what I want people to understand. One of the reasons we are not reconciling going through conflicts is because we don't have to, because I can leave that church and I can find a million churches online. Uh, I, I don't have to know my neighbor because I can just start interacting with someone on social media or texting them. We see this in the family, right? I don't even have to interact with my family because I can go to my phone and I can interact with someone else. I don't even have to be bored because when I'm bored, I can just go online and do something that sparks my interest. What is that doing that's keeping us from learning how to form strong tie relationships? And strong tie relationships are not just about agreeing about one thing. They're about having diverse opinions, but loving each other, going through a trial together, uh, having differences of how we view the world, but a commonality that pulls you together. And this is something we have to work at. I've seen this even with movements that unite around a really good cause, like um, people who unite around being abused by the church. I'm glad they're uniting. I'm glad, you know, like ex-evangelical is, you know, one of those groups, our church too. But they often unite around one thing, uh, trauma from the church. But then conflict occurs within that group. And when it occurs in that group, they don't have the skills to stay together. So we're seeing those groups fracture. We see progressive Christian groups unite around a really strong progressive ideology. But then when something happens within that group, they split into a smaller group. We have to learn how to walk through a conflict. And that will require feeling uncomfortable, not doing what is easy, because it is so easy just to move on to some other group but actually believing that we're called to community. So for pastors, 
to me, this is something we have to continually teach people. My first book was called The Community of God. We're an individualistic culture. People use social media for networked individualism. We're going to have to preach a gospel of community. It's never the individual first and the community second. What was God's promise to Abraham? To make him into a people that would bless the rest of the people of the face of the earth. That's our calling. We've been saved and set free and sins forgiven, not just so we can go to heaven, but so that promise to Abraham could be fulfilled through us, that we would be a people and make a people that would bless the rest of the people on the face of the earth. That's the question you ask people. It's not what your opinion is on a certain political agenda. It's are you communicating that opinion in such a way that you're trying to form a people that will bless the rest of the people on the face of the earth? That requires deeper discussions. That, that requires confrontations. It requires conflict. This isn't just about everybody getting along. It's about confronting the strategies that we're using. And for what purpose are we communicating our truth? And you know how easily a pastor or a leader can take true words and true meanings and true principles and separate them from the gospel. And now it just becomes legalism. It becomes a tax. It becomes a form of religion that's actually dangerous to the advancement of the gospel. So uh, what's the church's role in all this? How, how do we do spiritual formation around social media mm, and how we mm. engage each other? <laughs> uh, you buy the book. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, by the way, I do have things for small groups with churches, but uh, to me, I want this to facilitate the discussion. The church should not do this, which is just isolate. And I'm seeing that as well. People are like, you know, it's just hostile environment. And so I'm just going to isolate and hang out with. Uh, that's just another form of segmentation. Uh, I know for me, I'm a white male middle class. I ooze privilege and privilege in the simplest way is that I can choose whether or not I want to engage so many of the most pressing conflicts of our time. I can choose whether I want to look at racial injustice or not. I can choose whether I want to look at poverty injustices or ethnic injustices or gender injustices. And uh, what I'm seeing is some people just saying, I don't like the conflict, so I'm going to isolate. The church must be present in those discussions. Uh, the most pressing discussions of our time are happening online, and the church needs to be present. But we must be present with a different spirit, not just a different ideology or different opinions. And what we're seeing now is the church is present, but often we're present in the most angry, divisive, mean, polarizing, partisan ways. And so this is a part of discipleship that I think pastors, preachers, teachers, parents, actually, because discipleship really occurs mostly in the home. The pastor can say whatever he wants, but I can't overcome if someone listens to Tucker Carlson every day or uh, lives in a house that lives hypocritical when it comes to the kingdom of God. But uh, we have to be talking intentionally about our witness, and not our witness of sharing the four spiritual laws or how to get to heaven, but our witness that Christians should be defined by the fruit of the Spirit, that Christians should be defined by reconciliation. And uh, you can ask people, how's it going for you? How many, how many people are you growing in relationship with through how you communicate? Or are you just getting in a bunch of fights with people and blocking and muting people and living isolated in a more extreme uh, version that confirms yourself with your friends and your family? 
that's not the advancement of the gospel. So I think that's the practical way of to preach on it, to give social media examples. Um, even if you're not on social media, the impact of what's happening on social media is actually influencing in-person communication. So we need to be aware of that uh, when we're communicating with people in person uh, so we know what's going on and how best to respond. This book is ultimately about making peace through social media. You wrote, the witness of Christ is at stake. Now is not the time to minimize the darkness if we don't intentionally make room for transformative, reconciling voice of Christ in our social media communication we will face an increasingly dark social media future. Um, what does this look like to you? <laughs> By the way, that's that's really happy. And it's like, oh, great. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I kind of vacillate back and forth. Of, I, I wanted, I'm, I'm someone who believes we can change the world. I preach grandiose messages of, you know, I'm, I'm just very positive in that. But I don't want to minimize how dark things are. And I think a lot of us are kind of scared. It's, it's pretty scary with the divisions that are occurring, the segmentation that is occurring. Um, I'm asking for people to prayerfully get on their knees and say, Lord, what can I do? And let it begin with me. Uh, I've thought of this with um, funerals. Um, for anyone listening, if you died today, and I know, by the way, that's all. If you died today, great. It's one of those messages. No, but if you died today, uh, would you be comfortable with me reading your last 10 Facebook posts in front of the congregation for your service? Uh, would you, or your, your last 10 tweets, would that be a good representation of the heart of who you are? And this is what's happening is a lot of people we love and we care about we see them in person and they're, they're a full person. They have all kinds of expressions, but you see them online and online you're like, I wouldn't even be friends with this person. Online, every single post is about what's wrong with whoever, you know, what, and again, regardless of the ideology, you know, everything's about what they hate about Trump. Everything was about what they hated about Obama. Everything's about what they hate about Biden. And it's just this other kind of communication. Uh, is that the representation that we want the world to have of us and of the gospel? At some level, we have to find a way for those two worlds to look very similar, how I look like in person and how I look like uh, on, in an online presence. That's going to require intentionality. So I have in the book where I have people look over their last two or three weeks of communication and put it into categories. Because this happens in, in real life, right? Alignment in a family where the family's in chaos and you just start looking and you go, you know, I'm hardly spending any time with the kids or we haven't gone on a date night in a long time. And as you just look at those priorities, by the way, alcoholics are like this. They don't really know how many beers they're drinking. They'll just say, oh, I drank a couple of beers. And they actually believe that. But when they take inventory, they realize they've been drinking a lot more. We're doing the same thing online. We are actually not taking inventory with who we are. We have a perception of who we are, that's not reality. So I ask people to go through and to look at the reality of what they're communicating and then to be willing to say, uh, I repent of that. I want to grow. I want to be different. I want to facilitate discussions. Uh, online communication should be much more about, I want to know your opinion. And then when they share an opinion different than yours, you thank them for that. And you say, I appreciate you sharing that. I'd, I'd love for us to be able to have you know, further discussion, or at least if it's not further discussion, I want you to know 
that I still care about you and I value as a human being. I don't see you as a second-class citizen or a second-class American because we disagree, let's say, on gun control. Those are the realities of that intentionality. And right now I'm not seeing it. So at some level, I'm a little hopeless with it. I, I look at the world and I can't imagine what Christians are doing, but I wanna stand before the Lord and say, I did something. I actually facilitated environments where people could repent of their misuse of social media and they could learn to facilitate better conversations, reconciling conversations. Um, we need to be more diverse, practical. Look at the people online. Look at the people on Twitter, on Facebook. Are they all white? Do they all just look like you? Or frankly, if you're a black person, if they're just all black people, we know in ministry, we have to at some level, if we're going to reach people, have a diverse expression and to be intentional about it. Are they all young? Are they all old? Are they all a certain uh, politics? Are they all a certain ethnicity? Um, you know, that reality of we can isolate ourselves in these ideological uh, bubbles that with people who look like us and act like us, we need to intentionally work against that, which means to start following people we disagree with, following people of other genders, following people of other political persuasions who view the world differently, who first even rub us wrong. If we're intentional in doing that, Christians will look radically different than everyone else on social media. And that in and of itself will change the dialogue. Well, people will gravitate towards Christians because we're the ones who facilitate amazing discussions online, who have diverse opinions and thoughts, who can speak the truth, but still love each other. That's the reality of the witness I'm contending for. What's your hope for the book? Uh, yeah, uh, that sell millions of books and never have to work again. No, <laughs> you know, um, I certainly didn't do it to make money. I like, you know, I think everything is a faith step, right? Um, we all have things God has put on our heart. I'm kind of a people pleaser. I don't want people to dislike me, but there's a lot of things in this book that I know will make people angry, no matter how I say it. Uh, but my hope is that we don't spend all our time looking at what's wrong with them. I have, I have no desire to spend my life uh, looking at whether it's the speck in someone else's eye or even the plank in their eye, I believe that as I grow in Christ, the first thing I must do is look at either it's a speck or a plank in my eye. And I hope that this book encourages people in a climate of grace and love to take seriously their witness online. This is still a new technology. I know it feels like it's been around forever, but it's still new. And I hope that people will read it. And at some level, it might change the course of some of our communication, or we might demand better actions from each other and actually better tools from the people who run Twitter and Facebook and these other uh, social media platforms. So that's my ultimate goal. People would read it. It encouraged them in their communication. And then also, you know, it encouraged them with this is an amazing tool. It's an amazing tool. Uh, let's learn how to use it effectively so that we can uh, you know, be change agents in the world. That's the hopeful part for me. It might seem impossible, but you could do some radically powerful different things through social media. I have so many people with diverse opinions that I follow on Twitter and who follow me. And I've done more ministry online sometimes than I do in the church. It has tremendous value and I wanna use it the best way possible. If people wanna stay connected with you, where is the best place for them to go? Well, I, you just pray and the Lord will show you. No, you can do this. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, postingpeace.com will take you to my website, postingpeace.com. Um, I also have fairlyspiritual.com goes to the same place. Uh, my Twitter handle is fairly spiritual. 
and uh, basically, if you search Doug Bursch or Posting Piece, you'll find me. And I, I love to interact with people. If you use the Posting Piece hashtag as you read the book, I'm going to click on those and read them. So I'm hoping a lot of people will use the Posting Piece hashtag for these challenges. And then I can interact with you online as you go through the book. Of course, folks, go out and purchase Posting Piece wherever books are sold. Doug, thank you for making time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your challenge to consider how we might be the presence of Christ in the digital age. Well, thanks for having me on here. And the work you do is invaluable. And every single person listening, I want you to know clearly, I'm not your judge. You have your calling, but all of us can engage in the ministry of reconciliation. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.